Greetings and salutations, fellow geeks and nerds, and welcome back to the Geeks Journal podcast. This episode could prove to be one of the most divisive movie choices yet, and in order to do that, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Ollie and Damien, and returning to the collective, we have Lee from the Average Gamers podcast. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. This time around, we're going to be discussing a personal favourite of mine, for reasons that I will no doubt get into, and also one of the two final nails in the coffin of canon films, which is the 1987 live-action motion picture of Masters of the Universe. That's right, three episodes, three different movies, three very powerful mullets. (laughs) For those not familiar, when the evil Skeletor, played by Frank Langella, finds a mysterious device called the Cosmic Key and uses it to invade Castle Greyskull and imprison its sorceress, Courageous warrior He-Man, played by Dolph Lundgren, locates inventor Gwildor, played by Billy Barty from Willow, who created the key and still has a prototype version. During a battle, one of the keys is transported to contemporary Earth, where it is found by teenagers Julie, played by Courtney Cox, and Kevin, played by Star Trek Voyager's Robert Duncan McNeil. Now both He-Man and Skeletor's forces arrive on Earth, searching for the powerful weapon. And as a little aside, this was actually the very first live-action film I ever saw in the cinema. Really? Released in 1987. I was four. My dad took me to see it. It was mm. Boxing Day. It was the Christmas holidays, 1987 it was released. So I was a big fan of the cartoon growing up. And my dad recorded this Barry Norman film 87 segment. And it just blew me away. So we went to go and see it that weekend. It was excellent. What was everyone else's experience, if any, with this film before? I mean, Lee, had you seen this prior to your exposure for this i had yeah uh, crikey i was very young i remember it being on tv um and i think it was one of my parents had said oh yeah you know you, you like he-man don't you lee there's a film on now and i i can remember watching it and being slightly <laughs> underwhelmed at the time because <laughs> it wasn't exactly you know being young and naive you don't you expect it to just be like uh filmic version of what you see in the cartoon Mm. and this wasn't it was quite a bit different i haven't watched it since until recently for this obviously damien i mean you and i have watched this countless countless times growing up i think yes it is a guilty pleasure lee would probably call this disasters of the universe it is of its time (laughs) i'm not witty enough for that (laughs) and as we'll get into the production design is outstanding on this film ollie what about you i know this is this is quite a favorite of yours isn't it yeah it it is um I probably saw this 90, 91, maybe. I would have been like six or seven years old. It would have been a, a TV edit, for sure. But I remember we had it on VHS, and we used to watch it as a family pretty consistently. I still have that VHS, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we used to watch it all the time as a family. We even quote the film to each other when we say goodbye. Perhaps we'll save that for the end. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's also a film and a genre which I really enjoy. Also just a fond memory. I also remember you getting, this is a really early DVD. I think you even had like the cardboard casing of it. Yeah. And we, you really, you showed me it really quickly, like in your kitchen. Yeah. We put it on the DVD player and the DVD version just highlighted all of like the exquisite scenery, which I'd never seen before in the VHS version. That's a really fond memory. Yeah, I picked that up. It was in memorabilia at Birmingham one year, which I was very surprised because I didn't know it was coming out. And it was actually a Region 2. I thought it might have been an import, but it was straight up. It was a Region 2 UK release. It was very underplayed, with good reason, 
to a degree, I'll admit. But the director had, there was a commentary on it and the director did spend a lot of time actually highlighting the issues that they had through the production. And it is, yeah, I mean, obviously we'll get into that in a bit, but the overall setting of it, the design at the level as far as Attorney is concerned, I think is brilliant. Really, really good. So well, let's begin. Okay, so first up, I think it's important just to actually acknowledge the the overall production of the film, I think. Ollie, I mean, I'm sure as you'll agree, it's a very different yeah. aspect to the cartoon. It is. The The whole tone of the movie is much is much darker. The original toy range and subsequent TV series are very bright, bold, colourful. You know, they, it, su- it sucks you straight in with its, dare we say, garishness and... Mm like the crazy characters but yeah the whole tone of the f- this film is very much of that dark fantasy genre um, and we see that straight away with this fantastic opening narration where it zooms in onto the sorceress on castle grayskull it's so dark and gothic i'm instantly pulled in it's true it's, I mean, it's a it's an interesting change of pace in this when you ha- when you see like within like five minutes of this film coming on you just have he-man just straight up murdering fools left and right yeah so that was mandated by mattel he-man can't kill anyone so they have to be robots and that's why they remind me of hordax horde see that's a little bit different because for me all i've got is chris rock going in my head saying i think george lucas is going to sue somebody (laughs) so much vader-esque element to that i know that that i was reading somewhere they're saying the design was revolved around japanese samurai armor and i just watched it bullshit like there's so much about this oh so was vader sort of yeah vader was very much samurai samurai influence though yeah but so they, there's going to be parallels right i think there's difference between parallels and ripoff but that's just me i was quite um the start actually of the film and like just the production of it for the most part was actually pretty good i thought like it wasn't uh although the film on the whole is quite cheesy actually the kind of production of it was was pretty decent for the most part i thought other than the wildly like impractical weapons that the uh the dark troopers are sort of wielding <laughs> they were just like why have you got such long weapons like where you're going into small areas but that's the that's the war gamer in me talking <laughs> but no i thought it was really really well produced overall mm. overall i mean i think if there's one thing that that strikes me with this is that i think we could have done without the transporting to a different world i would have much rather seen this element of this civil war breaking out in eternia mm. and uh, you know you can you, you can see these different territories and meet these new characters but i believe that this was also due to the fact that because canon was in so much trouble that they had to throw it into a contemporary setting because then it essentially minimized the amount of soundstage that they needed and makeup and costumes that they needed yeah i mean i do understand that it was down to monetary reason but it's that whole of bringing it to your doorstep making it more accessible for the viewer and making it more exciting in that respect as well. I, I guess so, but I mean, they could have still saved budget by like that sort of opening pan, you know, where it's you can see is it Castle Grayskull in the background and there's like all the kind of Eternians being led off by these bad guys. They could have set a lot of it in like kind of outdoor environments with just a few little bits of set dressing here and there and you probably would have got, you know, a, a good story out of it. I don't think it needed to be in the real world. That just felt like for me especially like when i was younger and again now it just felt a bit like oh i'll bring it into the real world you know it's going away from the source material which Mm. i don't like unless it's done because this was obviously like a budget thing right it's quite clear yeah see i've i've never had a problem 
with it being so vastly different from the original TV series, I can watch it and appreciate it for what it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's not a bad thing. Like, well, it, it takes me out of things slightly, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Like, I, I like to be, I like to suspend my disbelief. And it's only when you see, like, Dolph Lundgren in the real world running around in his pants and a cape when that really kind of emphasizes how ridiculous it is. Whereas if he'd been in Eternia the whole time, it's like, oh, well, it's in keeping with the setting and it, it doesn't break the the suspension of disbelief that you have to have. I mean, I think we also need to take heed of the point of like, what the fuck was the point in that cape anyway? It is the most <laughs> ridiculous thing in the entire like in the entire film really for me which is really saying something but we'll get into the rest of that later i just remember the thing like it's the most pointless i've got edna mode in my head from it from the incredibles when i was watching that the other day and just got no capes we'll go back to the cape later because what he originally wanted was (laughs) even worse but it may have been better had they gone to earth in the past maybe conan the barbarian that may have Helped it more, quite possibly. I mean, if without the cape, he's running around in just speedos and boots, little booties. And it was the eighties. Yeah, it was the eighties. <laughs> Which, let's not forget, is the concept of the original source material. Anyway, the difference but... is, is that he wouldn't be running around in furry pants. That's an entirely different thing that we don't need to get into. <laughs> but again, the setting, right? The setting's important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, going back to it, bringing it to Earth helps. You know, the toy line, which is a big part of this film, I think. Does it, does it though? I think it does, because I think, it, again, it's like kids relate to it more. And, and it also, like, they can get the action figures and they can play them in the real world. It would be good had it not been on the decline then, because it had its day on the toy shelves, though. It, it, was, it was in dire straits. And they were grateful for these new characters, even though Carg didn't get an action figure. I think the geese they were as to this day. But the shock troopers didn't get figures till the 2000s, so it was it was released at the wrong time. I think it's interesting now because you've got people like I believe Super Seven have released yeah. four action figures, four collectors action figures from the movie line. So they released He-Man, Skeletor, the godlike Skeletor, which Lee, I know that you've got a couple of things <laughs> that you want to talk about that later, and I believe Karg was one of them, oh, I think. Karg is the one with the stupid hair, right? Justice for Karg, yes. Yeah, he's, he's the one with the hair, man. Bo, um, like David Bowie yeah. Labyrinth. <laughs> he's the one that looked like it was ripping off Terrorhawks. It's that sort of... Yeah design yeah it's got three feet he's like four foot tall and three feet of his hair which i've got i've got a i've, I've got a beef with that character in a bit that i'll get into though. i think we all have something that i thought about <laughs> like watching the film for the first time in years that i just suddenly thought how did they get away with that <laughs> lee you were talking about uh the design like grayskull and stuff earlier on talking about the the opening of the film i think there's a brilliant shot that opening shot of grayskull the overall artwork for that i think was absolutely stunning and i think if anything one thing that they fell short on in the film one of a few things they fell short on in the film is that the damage of Skeletor's invasion is very understated because I hadn't really noticed before until I was watching it on a much larger screen that as the sorceress is looking out over Eternia, you're seeing a city. Mm. But then it cuts after the what what feels like a 10 minute credit sequence. <laughs> and then it's just all desert wasteland. So so you know, shit has moved quick. Talking about the credit sequence actually is a very very dull thing to talk about, but I did get a very Superman esque 
vibe to it. Very Richard Donner opening credits of Superman vibe, which I think Bill Conti, who composed the music for this, I think took a little bit of inspiration from as well. It's that very big, very big flourishing fanfares and stuff like that. It's the most atri- like the most eighties intro I've ever seen. Just like that, <laughs> that blue background and then the metallic sheen on the writing and a like <laughs> barely legible font. Like ah, oh, so eighties. I was I was immediately transported back to my childhood despite having very little attachment to this. It is. It's all about that sound and the sight of it. I think is something that just draws yeah. you in. I actually thought nostalgia. the soundtrack was really good though. Like I, yeah. I actually did quite enjoy the soundtrack and. I'm pretty sure they've played it a lot in cinemas when we've been waiting for films, haven't they? Oh, like, yes, cool absolutely. I think probably now it's it, it's done the rounds so long it's probably open source now because no one knows what the <laughs> fuck it is. Actually, no, it's it was re-released an expanded edition a few years ago. I've, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two two discs. Enough for two discs. <laughs> but I am aghast right now. I am I am floored <laughs> that this has done the rounds again. Just going back slightly, like the the design and such, you know, the kind of gritty dark fantasy style. Did that? go some way to influence the the later he-man cartoon that came out like was it early 90s it's he-man in space or whatever they call it right New Adventures yeah He-Man. <coughs> that's it new adventures <laughs> he-man i remember yeah, that. That <laughs> so yeah i try not to talk i really liked that one so it... oh dear okay all oh, right <laughs> yeah i stuck a nerve here <laughs> you bomb people out of this oh, you um <laughs> Yeah, because it's interesting, I think, because that came out, I believe, 1990, 1991, which I think the first episode of that aired on ITV the same day that BBC One was airing the movie of Masters of the Universe. Oh, really? And it was one of those things, I think, again, concept of it was reasonable, but the execution of it was terrible was it that but i don't remember it being that bad have you watched it recently though i have not watched it in a contemporary setting no it's a very different animation isn't it they went for a more um, i think they did they even get a japanese production company they did to do the animation for it so it has that like western anime style about it which Mm. was probably a little bit more like dynamic a little bit more appealing Mm. compared to like the clunkier robotic yeah the old (laughs) one was like very sort of scooby-doo hanna-barbera like feel to it in terms of animation you know the repeating backgrounds when like the the people are running across screens and stuff but Mm. i just never gelled that much with with he-man back in the day i'm a Mm. simple man my childhood was like a flow chart like does it have transforming robots in it (laughs) yes watch. no gtfo like that's pretty much how my childhood went going back to the music i think one of the most recognized apart from the opening titles that they use is what comes after that which is our very first entrance of in my humble opinion the game changer of the entire film uh which is frank langella's initial entrance as skeletor and as a you know as a four-year-old kid watching this it was terrifying it was exciting and I still kind of got a feeling of that watching this recently. I think that was a very big nostalgia trip back for me. No, no, you're right. It's super impressive. They knocked two sound stages together for that set. Mm. It's, like, it's, it's just such an entrance. Big old set. Yeah, I thought it was a really good entrance, actually. I, I, you know, I liked it. I was, it set it up like really well. I was like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, they, they mean business here. This isn't some two-bit production. You know, this set is very elaborate. All the costumes look like pretty decent i thought it was really good yeah it's it's spectacular i mean like you've got the two halves so like in the throne room you've got like the godlike statues which i suppose is supposed to be like the Mm. good half and then in the underneath it 
where it just drops away, you've got these dark skulls. The the impositioning of how it's done is just incredible. It really is. Yeah, no, you're right, Ollie. That it was intentional, as obviously in the law, it's whoever has the two halves of the sword rules Grayskull and is the master of the universe. So it's the dual nature of the castle. How do you mean two halves of the sword, Day? The original toy line, Skeletor's got this purple sword, He-Man's got the silver one. Power sword and I can't remember what the other half's called, but they join them together and you unlock Grayskull and then you are the master of the universe. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Damien has it right. You had to get both toys, uh, Skeletor and He-Man, to get two swords to comprise them together so that you could unlock the drawbridge on the Grayskull castle. I mean, it was a clever marketing ploy for one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, I can vaguely remember. Did they have like little pegs so you could join? The yeah, two swords it was together? like one yeah, side of the sword was like rounded and the other side was like smooth with two pegs. And then it would have like a, a male and a female component, which would bring uh, them together so that, yeah, you could put them into a key and turn and it would drop the drawbridge. Huh, yeah, I think the whole aspect with with Langella as a Skeletor in this, and I want to talk about his performance specifically a little later on. But there is just this incredible presence with it, and it's borderline Shakespearean. It's all projection. It's all out there towards you. It's very little aside. It's always bang down the barrel of the camera, and it's just something a bit more, um, a bit more gripping about it yeah no you're right it's it's like he's in a play most of the villain evil in and skeleton especially looks like they're in a play delivering it straight to you i think they would do that if they were on eternia i think in general because i think later but i'm pretty sure that they have they have very static profile shots through most of the stuff that happens in eternia whereas on earth they're all over the shop they're panning and close-up and stuff like that it's, it's almost two two very different films being made is that not just down to the fact that they don't have to worry about the set running out if they pan the camera in the real world potentially <laughs> yes. on a soundstage <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was a really good entrance the only downside for me was that they they've obviously got the t- camera on a dolly going past like all the pillars on the exterior and there's a good like chunk of about a second of footage where there's mm-hmm. just pillar and it's like I'm trying to see what's going on. Get the bloody pillar out of the way. <laughs> it's like infuriating. But it's such a good entrance. Yeah. The costume is fantastic, I think. It's, you know, you've, you've got the memory of the cartoon where he's, again, it's like the similar design of He-Man as well because obviously moulding-wise it's saved on money. But I just like the fact that, like, there's this, it's just, it, it's again, it, like, it's almost vader-esque as well he's got these bits that are lighting up on his wrists and stuff like that and his chest piece it was just very menacing it was just a great design i actually had again looking back on it now i was probably like way more into this film than i actually remember because i recall that i do (laughs) have and still have somewhere a postcard of skeletor in that get up and stuff like that do you remember that that, yes it's great does it include the cuban heels (laughs) (laughs) he is rocking some serious heels on those on those boots. I'll not have a bad word said against that great man. Oh, I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking it at all. I just thought it looked good. <laughs> but he does look a bit like I, I get that you know they couldn't do a skull face. You know back then it's a bit harder to do without a really big budget. But he kind of ends up looking a bit like Dick Jones from RoboCop. Like <laughs> I had to check that it wasn't the same actor first. Like <laughs> just... I, I actually couldn't get out of my head that if you look a little close, the way that. Langella is smiling with the makeup on and stuff like that. He kind of looks like Jack Palance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then, of course, you've got that. And it's interesting because in the film, 
you have Skeletor referencing the Alpha and the Omega. And of course, you know, you've got opposites attracting, which is definitely the case in this because we, cause we have this this idol of Frank Langella playing Skeletor and then after projection to the masses saying, I win, bitches, get in line, <laughs> we then cut to a very disinterested Dolph Lundgren in his pointless-ass cape. And <laughs> he's still an incredible presence, but you can tell this was obviously a very difficult movie for him, I think. Like, this is, what, his third motion picture? And I think this I'd have to get this authenticated, but I'm not sure if this might have been his first english speaking role it's his first leading role i think as well you yeah, know his th- first leading role i'm gonna defend the cape now he originally <laughs> kickboxing gear on and he had to be talked down because they, t- they said it makes you look like a homosexual dog you can't wear this get up so it could have been far worse <laughs> so I, I like the i'd like the cape i like the cape i like a cape so, rather than a homosexual you, they'd rather he look like an snm like <laughs> attendee get into more clubs <laughs> I mean, we don't have time to unbox all of that, but <laughs> what a thing for the studio to say. That was ridiculous. Oh, no, it was a costume designer. <laughs> oh, God. I told him no. I'm guessing it was a conscious decision then to set the like the tech level sort of felt very Star Wars. You know, you mentioned that Skeletor almost looks like Darth Vader. Did they have like guns and, and lasers and all this kind of stuff like in the original cartoon? I only saw it, like, I, I watched it in passing when I was a kid, but I always kind of assumed it was more fantasy-esque. Some, but not a lot. Most okay. of it was a lot more kind of mythical magic and sorcery and things like that. But there was occasionally, mm. there was a few weapons, certainly not to this level. I always thought that He-Man's blaster that he carries around was almost reminiscent of um, of Megatron in, in pistol form. Mm-hmm. Design it looks more like the guns that Megatron guns prime down with. Yeah, maybe mm. not Megatron himself, but yeah. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, definitely right there. Yeah, no, it's more a holdover from the toy line because the toys had guns and things, depending on who the character was, as well. Okay, so that's where they've drawn it from. Uh, okay. Where are our replicas though? Where was that? They missed a great opportunity there. Are you <laughs> yeah. kidding? Yeah. If they brought that out now, I'd go broke. If I they... can make you a He-Man sword from this film. I actually used to have Lee. You were saying about the um, the, the new adventures of He Man. I actually had the power sword you and guess. Skeletor staff from that series. They're bombing around somewhere. I've still got right them. <laughs> I think a special shout out needs to go out to another character in this, and that is for Billy Barty playing Gwildor, because that must have been absolute agony for him in those prosthetics. That was essentially a helmet he was wearing. What is Bo Selector mask, where his lips never move? <laughs> his Bo Selector mask, yeah. <laughs> See his lips moving within his lips. You yeah. can almost write it off as a, 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 a as a as a trait of the race, but no, it's because like the 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 makeup he was wearing was was so substantial. But you got to give him credit though, because yeah, even if it was a helmet, he was doing a lot of like physical acting. I mean, the first time we meet him, he's being like dragged around in a fishnet. You know, and then he's like later on we see him getting like rugby tackled by Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> you know, <laughs> compared to the amount of like physical movement that Skeletor has to do, he does an exceptional amount. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, I think Barty's very expressive with his voice as well, which is quite lucky, and he got and he was able to to gesture quite a lot. Yeah, but yeah, as far as the face goes, uh, you know, you get get virtually nothing so it must be incredibly difficult for him you know especially i mean now 
you almost kind of get used to it when we're seeing performances like Tom Hardy playing Bane and stuff like that, where you can only really make out the eye, you can't make out the mouth or anything like that. And that's where he's a really great um, character actor, though, because you can see like all of the expression in his eyes and his eyebrows. I think his upper facial movements just say so much in this film. He does cause... Well, not Barty. The character of Gwildor and the production of the film causes many... Um, how can I put it? Um, that was lucky moments. Yeah, I mean, throughout this film, I love it just so happens moments is what I'm calling them. <laughs> yeah. So when we get into his, well, what should we call it? His, his home, his laboratory, and they want a quick escape. Oh, there just happens to be a secret tunnel that leads to Greyskull, exactly where they want to be. How convenient! <laughs> How convenient is that? Yes, this pacifist who is a peace, who is a member of this peaceful race, just happens to have a secret escape hatch in case shit goes south. That is such a bizarre notion. Is it? Is it like the uh, the whole Jar Jar was was the evil Sith Lord kind of fan theory? <laughs> is this a similar deal? Is Gwildor actually like you know puppeting Skeletor here? <laughs> I love that after they escape. Karg bursts into the to the room looking for Gwildor. Now, his line in that scene is, find the key, tear this place apart. The only people that know about the second key have just escaped. Gwildor, He-Man, Man-at-Arms, Teela. Skeletor doesn't know about the key. Evelyn doesn't know about the key, which we see in, in a few minutes at the, at, at the confrontation. How does Karg know about the key? And why has this fool not been telling his superiors? Well, it does take them a long time to burn through that door with the, the ex impressive explosion that would have wiped the half the house out. <laughs> he was here at the door uh, with their impressively long guns that Lee likes so much. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed like such an odd line to me before. Like, like, I'd, like I'd never thought about it before. And when I watched it again recently, I just went, son of a bitch. It's a big old plot hole, that. <laughs> I will say this for the film. The pace of it is incredible in the opening i think like when it gets to earth it tails off a little bit it slows down a bit but when they're on eternia they just blitz through again mm. maybe because they're trying to save budget and the amount of time that they need to be using the soundstage for but it goes along at a lick to the point where through 10 minutes of the film we finally get face to face with he-man and skeletor and it's one of my favorite scenes of the entire film before i went to see the film i said like my, my dad recorded this sort of preview on, on film 87 when Barry Norman was doing it and they actually had this clip and I don't mean a little 5-10 seconds oh look at this I mean it was virtually that entire dialogue and somewhere on this planet is an audio tape of me <laughs> doing that entire dialogue between myself all the voices riffed it off please splice that into this episode I was... <laughs> I wish I could. I can't find it in time. But yes, but yeah, I, I used to I used to record myself on a little Fisher Price cassette tape, record myself doing all the voices of this particular scene. I had no idea of the context of what was going on. I just remember watching go, holy crap, this is cool. And I think it is for the most part, I think it's a it is a good scene. Of course I was watching it this time, seeing the sorcerer go, Hey, it's Monica's mum. <laughs> Seven years previous to Friends, we have Christina Pickles playing the sorceress. But you have, again, just this wonderful delivery from Frank Langella, this theatrical, grand delivery of a performance, and it just looks like Dolph Lundgren is reading from cue cards. 
you say dialogue, it's mostly a monologue from Skeletor where they could have easily shot him multiple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I know it's a film and you know, but there's, there's monologuing and then there's this, which is just like, here I am, shoot me. You've got ample opportunity. <laughs> oh, you, are, you are, of course, referring to the classic and it looks like it's dubbed, but it's not. He's like, let her go. Almost like, he's kind of like almost stammering over his words before <laughs> he actually says them. He kind of pauses and goes, let her go. There's probably someone with a card down in the corner in his eye line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did get the impression during this movie that actually um, John Cryer, or sorry, John uh, Cipher, who plays Man at Arms, perhaps got some better lines than he was expecting because Dolph couldn't do the take. <laughs> sorry, I was. <laughs> you said John Cryer. John Cryer. I just thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I know. Alan from Two and a Half Men is in this movie? <laughs> well, would, I won't lie, that would get my attention a lot more. It was the 80s. <laughs> He'd have been Just... like 10, wouldn't he, or something? <laughs> no, no, this is, no, this is prime, um, this, yeah. is, this is Ducky and Sixteen Candles, isn't it? Yeah, and like about Pretty in Pink and... Yeah, Pretty in Pink, sorry. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so mm. he was about... Imagine if it had been done by John Hughes. <laughs> oh... <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> I think it's the the fight scene for this section I think was was very good. It's very grand, very very big, very early on, I think. One thing that I noticed that I could not stop noticing is that for something that is supposed to have this all-powerful sword, he uses it a handful of times and uses the gun the majority of the time. I don't know if that's Hollywood and America coming into it. But for t- he was like he might deflect a, a a blast of bolts once or twice, but ultimately he's just holding on to the sword and not doing anything with it and just shooting people from a distance. Or he is actually scavenging troopers' weapons and using them instead, which I thought was very. He's, like, he's essentially the Avatar in Doom in this. He's just picking up whatever's on the floor and shooting people with it. Is that does that come back to that whole like mandate though, where they don't want to see him killing too many people, and it's probably more brutal to see them hacked up with a sword. And harder to film, therefore, than it is to shoot someone with a gun and add a add an effect in post. Quite probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty odd. Seeing how that that's what Skeletor's after as well is the sword for the end of the film to unlock the yard. Mm. Yeah, which of course they finally escape and they get onto Earth. And unfortunately, when they do get onto Earth, for me, interest tails off a little bit. Mm. Now, I think I'm my attention is much more drawn to everything that's happening in Eternia rather than anything that's happening on Earth. I get a little bit exhausted with the whole, like, what is this strange place kind of deal. Well, it, there's a real danger, isn't there? Of if, you're, if, you sort of, if your concentration lapses slightly and then you go back to the film and it, you, you come in just as it flicks to Earth, you're like, hang on, why the hell? Why am I looking at Tom Paris and Monica from Friends? And why are they in a diet? What the fuck's going on here? Did I, was did watching I sit E-Man. on the remote? What happened? Yeah, exactly. Like I literally thought, because it's it's not like it's it's not instant that you see them come through the portal. It's it's quite a, quite a gap. I'm I'm just gonna I'll get back to the, uh, the strangers in a strange lands moment. But there's another moment of convenience again. Dolph Lundgren rugby tackles um, Gwildor as they go through the portal. They've dropped the key. Oh, hang on a second. I've got a grappling hook. That was convenient. I'll fire that through. He's Batman. 
<laughs> yeah, that is that is one hell of a shot, actually, isn't it? When you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that grappling hook again, actually, because so you've got the moment where <laughs> never mind the the apocalyptic event that is about to happen in your home planet, like Man at Arms is just literally fuck this, I'm hungry, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and so he finds this fast food, like KFC style place. And in the bushes, he and Teela see Gwildor with this grappling hook and he's aiming it down and he's looking at it. Let's not forget, Billy Barty is just under four feet tall. The arc of that grappling gun was <laughs> massive. It was shot so high before it landed in that car. <laughs> That's just something that just struck me. She's a waitress in this KFC thing. So is Linda Hammond, Sarah Connor in the Terminator in that involving time travel? That's just that's just come to me as well. Perhaps it would have been a better film. Yeah, wait. I always remember that that Courtney Cox was in this film. Of course, it didn't dawn on me for a while that it was Tom Paris playing the boyfriend. Robert Duncan McNeil, sorry, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I call him Tom Paris for comedic effect, but... Well, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom Paris from Voyager is, is yeah, what I meant. It's less syllables, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, like, the character, he's he's a bit of a dick. Mm. Like, he's not a nice guy. Yeah. Come on, Julie, it was a plane crash. These things happen. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the woman lost both her parents in a plane crash, and you just... Yeah, don't sugarcoat it, mate. <laughs> it's like the autopilot in the dark rises. <laughs> <laughs> they they died, Julie. Get over it. <laughs> That's basically how he says it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like like it all boils down to coincidences because, of course, they find the cosmic key at the cemetery. I don't know how it's supposed to have flown that far away from the portal that they actually came through. Do you ever get an impression of? Like the distance between those two places, though. Well, it's enough that they said, "Oh, we need to stop off here first and do it." So it's not like it's like next door to where he picks Julie up, which is essentially where they land. But then they find this—you know—they find this mystical device that they immediately think, "Ah, oh, it's a Japanese synthesizer," <laughs> and he so happens to know a music guy that runs a store in town that can take a look at it. It's like your brain can't cope with how many conveniences are in this film. Plot armor. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's what we in in uh, in my acting degree. It's like we what we like to refer to as the magic if. <laughs> but then, of course, we see as an introduction to what was supposed to be new toy lines for Mattel. The introduction of the mercenaries. So Skeletor wants to send these guys over to go and get the key back, but they've got to trace it first. And so when these foolish kids are mucking around with it and press the big button that opens this little doorway they're able to trace it and that's when we 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 meet these mercenaries for the first time which we have blade who was played by a guy called anthony de longis i believe who actually choreographed the sword fights Hmm. for the film and then we have karga's returned Beastman, who was the original character from the uh, from the cartoons although this time around could not speak and i think that was also due to the makeup and prosthetics and teeth that he had on his mouth was essentially wired shut for this he just could (laughs) not move it at all and then we had I mean, for me, was the best sidekick villain of the entire film, which was Sorod, the lizard guy Sorod, who, I mean, he meets a very brief end. Yeah. It wasn't his fault, right? Justice no. for Sorod. He, it should have been that fucking white-haired idiot. <laughs> like, he should have got it. He was like, you know, he fucked it up, not 
not lizard man. Hashtag justice for Sorod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually for like what like again one thing that I've never noticed before and that it came up this time when Skeletor's actually going down that line and he's warning them what's going to happen about the price for failure and stuff like that. They've swapped positions. Again, continuity. <laughs> you stand there. You get killed. I don't. I don't <laughs> know amazing. how much coke the continuity crew went through for this, but it's just all over the shop. It's just. It's. It's. Don't get me wrong. For the purpose of this, it's so good. But if I like, if I watched a film like that now, pay money to go into it, I'd be so mad. I'd be so <laughs> livid. I never noticed that. Actually. I've never noticed either. That's brilliant. <laughs> I would just like to comment though, like on the, the the costumes of those four characters are they are really scary. They're scary characters. Apart from Blade. Apart oh, from yeah. Blade. But it's like a like this is a PG film and they are they are gruesome looking creatures. I'm surprised. yeah, I'm surprised that it made a PG because of it. And the way they come to Earth and then pursue Julie in well, in, in particular in that, that prom setting oh in the hall in the hall yeah okay the one where the one where kevin the douchebag boyfriend just turns around and says like yeah okay i'm gonna leave you here for a bit then i'm gonna go to charlie's and see if he can help me work out what this thing is never mind the fact you're leaving town in like a matter of hours yeah i know it's his last last night with her but yeah wait here (laughs) yeah and it's not really even it's not a sound check either he says you can make my sound check over at the gym right it's like it's not a sound check the rest of the band isn't there there's no one monitoring the sound from the outside he's just tinkering around with the keyboard it's like i'm worried that you don't understand what you're doing for supposedly what you want to do for the rest of your life it's a a deep concern a great deleted scene (laughs) yeah And that's that's where Beastman like really shows like that paper backdrop <laughs> what he's made of, right? Absolutely schools that that paper into submission. I mean, we actually need, and who's keeping ammonia just lying around in this yeah, in this gym <laughs> in a gym? What's that for? Like, I'm sorry, this janitor deserved to get the shit kicked out of him by all of these guys. <laughs> like he's doing it such a terrible job. You're leaving those sorts of chemicals just lying around for anyone to see. Which actually talking about Carl. How is it that, because obviously, like, after Julie runs away from the mercenaries, like, the entire gym is just burning down. Carl has been beaten half to death, been left in a burning building where you would imagine the roof has pretty much collapsed at this point. How did he survive? Plot armor. Plot armor. Is that, like, like, the only thing that just, like, like reality's just going to go completely out the window here. Never mind the amount of broken bones and being smashed in the face and thrown 20 feet through a door. Not even thrown punched 23 mm. feet through a door oh yeah he's Mass dead ma- he's a dead man like, exactly but all of a sudden he's just getting stories. wheeled out by the police and 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 lubick played by back to the future's james tolkien able to talk to kevin and so you don't ever want to know what happened here i said um i mean police are gonna argue that <laughs> never underestimate it- the power of a baseball jacket <laughs> it's horrendously contrived that he survives that because he yeah by rights that man should be dead he should have been dead long before the fire started like <laughs> the amount of damage he took i think it's interesting having a character like james tolkien in this playing playing lubick playing the detective for one i mean the 80s must have been a very difficult time for james tolkien because he's just stereotyped as the same character all the time always that kind of very strict very stern down the line character i mean was he he was top gun i believe yeah. as well mm. i always like to think that him strickland and stringer they're all cousins 
They're, they're <laughs> 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 or some sort of multiverse. Yes, right? yeah. They've recently. Um, I forget who's got day. Is it Dark Horse that are still doing the the He-Man comics? No, DC have got DC have got the license back. Dark Horse do other uh, compendiums of things. A DC have got the the current ones because mm. they've done a multiverse of He-Man and they're bringing them in. And New Adventures has been in it, and Dolph Lundgren's He-Man is in it oh, as well. Right. He's he's and the protagonist. I, Dolph Lundgren's He-Man. He's the protagonist. Yeah. I love it. I just love that. Like, I'm waiting for it to come. I'm not willing to pay full price on the digital, but I will definitely check it out at some point. Oh, I'm going to wait for that. I've read the to... first few. It's very good. Excellent. Going back to Lubick, sorry. He's, it's an interesting character because he just, for me, just sort of stands out a little bit. This is a almost a hardened New York detective in some Midwest town with what seems like very tame law enforcement. It's his mm. last day before retirement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too old for this shit. <laughs> With, if you notice, he actually has a tie pin that is handcuffs. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> His tie pin is a pair of handcuffs, and I just thought, Brilliant. there's like this, like this guy's clearly seen some stuff. Like I don't know if he just <laughs> needed a break and came to this town. He makes a comment about um, being in Korea as well, doesn't he? Later on in the film. Oh yeah, yes. he does. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the handcuffs come from. <laughs> the... <laughs> So then, of course, he and Kevin are looking for Julie to try and work out what's happened. And they end up in Julie's house. Now, here's another issue. So Julie is leaving town. 8.30 is the bus that she's supposed to be getting on. I don't know what time it is at this point anymore. Uh, Time has literally sort of stood still. (laughs) But the house is a mess. There's Burger King cartons and cups everywhere. There's oranges on the counter boxes everywhere she's supposed to be leaving town the house is sold and she's just leaving this like complete shit tip with stuff still going on clearly zero shit's given she she works her final shift the the same day that she's going to leave town hasn't bothered cleaning up like uh uh, tom paris just throws all the burger king's trash in the sink like who does that bastards (laughs) i mean yeah she's just literally like if you moved into that house and everything was still there you'd be fucking livid yeah definitely (laughs) I'm not giving enough credit to um, Meg Foster playing Evil Lynn. I think uh, another shout out needs to go to her for that. Again, it's a very good performance. It drew a very, very minimalist performance. There's not a lot of expression there. She just draws you in. It's probably a good reason for that because that cost, she couldn't move in that costume. She couldn't sit down and she was bruised everywhere <laughs> from top to bottom in that costume. It was so restricted. She just could not, couldn't breathe, couldn't do anything. Yeah. Medals definitely need to be given to some people in this film. And she's got the scene where she's interrogating Kevin when they where they where they break in. And again, Kevin in a form of self-defense, when he sees Beastman breaking through a door, his initial reaction while he's cleaning up the house is to throw a tea towel at him. Did anyone else think that was a little strange? <laughs> Saying get out of here as though they're gonna go, meh, alright. Yeah. Watch out, he's got a tea towel. He's out. Yeah. <laughs> And that entire interrogation scene used to scare me as a as a kid. You've got that this 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 collar that's supposed to make people tell the truth, and she's More just again just very calm, very collected, and and and, <laughs> and just the way that she's she's speaking to him and things like that. It was very scary. Although apparently this equipment isn't that important because they just leave it there. It's still on him. That's a good point. You take it to the same club that Blade's going to later. <laughs> <Apparently so. laughs> it's 
just such a weird thing that like because it's got a name it's the collar of something other or, or other i can't remember but it, like if it's an individual thing with a name you imagine there is some sort of value to that device finite resource but they just leave it attached to kevin as if say so are, are, are they going to come back are they gonna, i don't know 50 more of them back home yeah. in, like, in a cupboard right they yeah yeah, they have to buy in bulk, otherwise it causes suspicion. The collar of truth. Oh, I've got, got another one of those. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, it's not my um, favourite convenient moment, though. You've got another one in the previous scene where they're in the um, junkyard giving each other the runaround, and Evil Lynn turns up with this ray gun which has like oh. a, a transparent iPad on it. Yes. And all of a sudden she can oh, see. Yeah. she can see in like the fifth dimension or something what's previously happened yeah. it's like again a convenient toy for everything it's brilliant but when they bugger off from the house as well how the hell do the others not when they turn up in this car that Gwildor's like messed about with how do they not see the speeder fly off at that because they are literally it flies off as they're coming down the road so there is so much with that that, that got me one yes why did they not notice it Two, why are no neighbours ringing the police at the moment thinking, what the hell are they seeing happen outside their front door? <laughs> like, this town, despite all of the buildings, despite all of the houses that are there, must have a population of ten, because there are no bystanders anywhere. No one's watching anything, reporting anything. But the one thing that bothers me the most about it is that exactly where did Gwildor get all of this Eternian tech that he <laughs> retrofitted onto this car. That would be why Charlie sold no musical instruments in that shop whatsoever. It's just it's just <laughs> Kevin buying everything from him. Yeah. I mean, how close to Roswell is that place? Maybe that's why. If it's like right by Area 51, maybe this is an everyday occurrence there. So they go over to the music store because they find it because Lubick's taken the key away from Kevin and he wants Charlie to look at it. I think like now it was a bit iffy, the fact they just said, you don't think this could be Russian, could you? And oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little Iron Curtain-ish now. And we get into the to the to 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 another big battle. There's only again. There's really only two or three in this. There's not a lot of like major fights in this. But then you've got the assault on the music store where everyone's convening in the back and Gwildor's going to try and get the key working again. But it's again. There are so many things that make you wonder. Like how exactly are they supposed to do this then? Eva Lynn puts Beast Man in charge of leading the assault. Man can't talk. He literally growls and points, and he's <laughs> going to coordinate this massive assault on a man that they've never beaten that has always been able to pound them into the ground and he's supposed to lead the charge on this it's crazy let alone the fact that of course while this is all going on evil lynn is then sneaking around the back of the music store and camouflaging herself as julie's dead mother which doesn't make sense to me like like you're baffled i know that like there's probably a portion in julie's mind that wants it to be true and so is being convinced of it or that sort of thing but surely as a result she must have id'd a body at this point but she's going along the realms of like she, she, oh yes your your father and i have been doing secret work so we had to disappear get the fuck out of here <laughs> i mean if it was that effective why didn't they all just go around the back right <laughs> like no, just evil in on her own. Because Beastman's Operation Hume Chill. <laughs> I mean, that's one hell of a diversion at the front, if I'm honest. Like, you could have maybe done that with about five of them and sent the rest around the back through the, you know, through the humans who are less well-versed, right? That's actually one of my favourite exchanges in the film is between He-Man and Man-at-Arms when they're in the middle of that fight. And he's like, oh, do you think, so, do you think we did something to upset them? He said, no, they're just lonely. They miss us. 
and then you've got this like breaking fight breaking out in the street while they're running away and god knows what and again by this point evelyn's got the key from julie because she's been completely brainwashed into thinking that it's that it's her mother and so she's given her the key and she's run off and at that point she's calling in skeletor and again nobody seems to be noticing the massive portal opening on main street (laughs) uh, where this giant ship is coming in and again fantastic design awesome design but no one's noticing it. No one's around to just go, oh my God, what's this? Like, this is literally being experienced and exposed by four human beings. That's it. No one else is seeing anything. Maybe there was a football game on or something. You know, everyone else was glued <laughs> to the TV and just didn't want to look outside. I did. I did like the moment. First of all, again, another another bit of credit to, to Billy Barty for jumping over the quite large puddle of fire <laughs> when they're leaving the music store. I watched that at this time and just going, insurance must have had a field day with that because I'm pretty sure Barty could only really jump no more than a foot <laughs> and somehow managed to just leap over this bit of fire wearing a very long, no doubt knowing this production, highly flammable coat. <laughs> no insurance whatsoever, probably. Just crazy. And then, of course, you get the air centurions come out and they're going to chase him down and things like that. And... I, Yes, I love the I I love the idea that when He Man's on one of these things and he goes upside down, his hair is perfectly in place. Oh, returning hair, it looks so Spray much. <laughs> yeah, it just looks like an action figure is stuck to it in the, like the wide shots, like the stance hmm. of it as well is perfectly like the He Man action figure, right? The sort of semi squat kind of pose. It probably was, to be fair. It was either that or it just would have been a stock photo (laughs) of him on the platform that they were just moving on green screen. Because perception of it doesn't really change when he kind of like scoops up. Actually, I'm going to retract what I said about the platform because it's an anti-grab platform, isn't it? So it's natural that everything would still stay where it is. But then again, I guess I'm just throwing in magic ifs for the sake of it now because that's what this film did for an entire 90 minutes. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a retcon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he gave the cape to Julie, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it wouldn't be upside down. It's probably easier to, to not have to worry about that on special effects, right? <laughs> the cape and the sword fall off his back when he breaks into the building. Yes, Oh really? It yeah, falls yeah, off his back, yeah. which the reason why then he just kind of he goes to Gwildor and just says, like, "Take this, give me the grappling hook." Take and it's because it was halfway off his back already. <laughs> yeah, and actually, it um, that scene actually solved a or answered a question that I had earlier in the uh, film is that where is He Man keeping anything on his person? And then when he's trying to like stow the grappling hook, he's literally shoving it down his speedos. It's like, ah, <laughs> that's how he does it. That's an answer I didn't need. <laughs> now, now I know. But he's got that that tracker because they're also again the dialogue in this, like the definitions and terminology, is completely bananas. Because you got to say, if we're going to meet up, we're going to have to synchronize our personal locators. And He Man's got one that is handheld. And again, it's a case of where was that? You don't want to know. <laughs> and I have that voice in the Running Man just going. So it's like none of your damn business. I went. That's okay. That's all right. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay with not knowing. <laughs> but then you've got while well, he's off doing God knows what, like having the grappling gun stuffed down his pants and going after the key again. The Man at Arms and 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 Teeler and Gwildor and the kids. They're all on this roof. Which again, why? Why would you when there are soldiers? On flying platforms, blitzing around in the sky, would you go on top of an open roof? It's For a better the... view. 
dumbest strategy I've ever seen. And I watched the Statue of Liberty get brought to life with pink slime running through New York. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag justice for Ghostbusters. The fact that like they're all talking, they've got their backs to the edge of the building and you see this long before they do. You start seeing Skeletor's skiff well, no, you just, see Skeletor's head first. It's <laughs> so good that he just raises up. And yeah, it's almost up. like it just becomes a bit of a pantomime moment. You almost want to yell out to the screen, He's yeah. behind you! <laughs> and again, like, just Skeletor with this very it's a very methodical dialogue in this. He's not... He's not a muscle-bound moron! <laughs> like, oh, he's very... And he prays! And he prays! <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I, I'm quite glad at this point that they addressed the whole. He sat on an exposed throne on this skimmer. Like a, a single bullet or you know laser blast could get rid of him, and it turns out he's got a deflector shield. I was like, ah, good. They do address that at least, because I was thinking the whole time, I was like that is the worst place to sit his command seat, <laughs> exposed. I was never sure if it was something that was built into the skiff or if it was him putting up a force field. Oh, I don't know, yeah. Because he well, raises his hand. He is a sorcerer in the... Yeah, yeah. it's a flick mm, of the wrist, isn't, so... isn't it? Oh, I, didn't, I must admit, I didn't spot that. It was a, a really good moment when you see... One of the few times that you see Lundgren use the sword properly. Like, it's the only weapon he has at this point. So when the fight breaks out on the roof and he starts just swiping troopers down left and right and the fanfare's going and it's all kicking off. One thing in that scene is that like He-Man's supposed to be like the power of all powers realistically cartoon he-man wouldn't have that problem that they have in this so they do try and keep an element of yes he's strong but he's not superman come on don't be ridiculous <laughs> there's a limit and then there's the there's the deal between him and skeletor and skeletor's like you come with me they'll live and even you can tell the troopers are kind of on the verge of just saying so right okay we're gonna wait for he-man to have his back turned then we're gonna kill these fools <laughs> And Skeletor has that very almost honourable moment where he says, no, so long as they're alive, he's going to fall in line, so leave them here. And it's, it's just the way he goes, let them rot, and starts chuckling. I just went, that's quite sinister. That's actually mm-hmm. quite well played. It goes back to um, He-Man's line early on in the film where he makes where he says, it's always been between you and me. And Skeletor, oh. and Skeletor is so, yeah. he's so obsessed with that notion that it is nothing else matters no one else matters it it will always be he-man and skeletor as long as he has he-man nothing else matters yeah it's the it, it it's almost like you see one of the best moments in the dark knight for me is where heath ledger has the the scene with christian bale where it's the joker and batman in the interrogation room and there is that just one line it's just so perfectly timed um no no, no so, uh, sorry it's not the interrogation room it's it, it's on the building where he says he said i said you won't kill me because of some misguided sense of justice and i won't kill you because you're just too much fun i believe you and i are destined to do this forever and i think that is one of the it's the it's the it's the linchpin of that film for me the relationship between the two of them and it's like that for he-man and skeletor there's always going to be that push and pull it's the irresistible force meeting the immovable object it it, it is literally not trying to parody disney's quote here but it is a tale as old as time there is always that good versus evil and particularly from the 80s 
there was always things like that but but one of the prime things growing up as a kid it was you know it was optimus prime and megatron it was he-man and skeletor and i think that's something they did very well in this because there was there's almost a respect in conversation between them ish i think like they're never you know they're never being insulting to each, uh, to each other or anything like that again not like the cartoon because it's just straightforward conversation between them it's more a I guess almost a Holmes and Moriarty situation. It seems a little bit more civilized, more nuanced, yeah, yeah, compared to the cartoon. Which mm. <laughs> that muscle-bound moron, yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, there is a very, there is a, there is a massive difference between the the cartoon where he is, yeah, we, we joke, he is an absolute, yeah, goofball. He's so full of like haphazardness and never pulls off what he wants. But the the Frank Langella Skeletor, he is, he is pure evil. I mean, we get that straight away from the beginning of the film. Somehow, he's already managed to take over Castle Grayskull. He's competent. Right? Yeah, yeah, he knows what he's doing, exactly. He's not to be messed with. He's not to be trifled with. And it is that, I will do anything to get to get my hands on He-Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go on. Tale as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> the whole relationship between them i think stands out a lot when it comes to that final scene when they finally get back to grayskull lee i believe like we were we were talking about i think you had this realization of when you saw the credit you thought who the fuck pig boy is yeah where did that go i saw it in the credits and i'm like I, pig boy is that the name of one of the mercenaries no they were no pig boy is the little dude that hands skeletor his stuff when they get back to grayskull and i'm a little hazy on the details as to why he was there. That was a competition winner organised by Mattel, and the prize was a part in the film, which annoyed the director, because he had to shoehorn it in, mm-hmm. and they just, so that's why he's called Pig Boy, because he was just annoyed. It was something that dumped on him by the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. But we, we skipped over a bit where, you know, she takes that fatal shot of lightning to the knee. Before returning, <laughs> before they all get transported back to Eternia. Eternia, unlikely. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It'll take your knee off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love the fact that they, you know, they 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 recognise it just because oh, this is Skeletor's particular gift, and it's like, what? Yeah. Again, just but... explaining away this very fatal thing that's going to happen. And it would have course... been better if he pulled out a gun and shot her, right? Like it would have been less ridiculous. Like oh no she got she got grazed by some electric and now her leg is all bubbly and melty or whatever or plague ridden, whatever it's meant to be. Well now we've got also the fact that you know the key is destroyed, and and again props to to props to Julie in this as a character like she is stepping up she is putting herself literally in harm's way like that but like you get the impression that this like part of that attack was meant for He-Man and Skeletor took it out on her so she literally threw herself in certain death at this point for him. a lightning <laughs> bullet yeah yeah <laughs> but then of course we have the other explain away in this sense of but of course Kevin is a quote-unquote master song maker question mark <laughs> and can remember the keys and knows how to play it on the keyboard and obviously playing piano like that is a thing uh, friends that can that can hear a tune and play it on the piano quite quickly but Gwildor seems so stunned about this. And I love, you know, you have the very positive message of there's only there's only one of you. Only one of anybody. The real hero is in us all along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the, the they, they, they try to give you the warm and fuzzy 
which as a kid you kind of go for and you watch this now and go, wait a minute. Well, then that's a bit of a hark back to the original TV series then, isn't it? Where there was always like like a, a moral at the, uh... at the end of the TV series. There was always <laughs> like some kind of like words of wisdom to live by. And there are, there's a, there's a couple of moments like that throughout this film where they do try to like lay it on a bit. The real plane crash was the friends we made along the way, right? <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> it was always between He-Man, G.I. Joe, Mask. Thundercats did it as well. Yeah. Thundercats yeah. did it. They always had that, yeah, that, it, it was like in, in G.I. Joe, it was knowing is half the battle. It's like that, that T-shirt, isn't it? It's like knowing is half the battle and then the rest of the pie chart is 25% red lasers, 25% blue lasers. Yes! <laughs> it's a brilliant, brilliant T-shirt, I think. A brilliant meme. <laughs> Just to say that it was kind of like part of the contracts that so that those cartoons could have violence, it was like a, a government guideline that they then had to like offset it at the end with like, mm. yeah, a, a moralistic saying or something along those lines to get away you've just chopped off someone's head or blown someone up <laughs> you imagine if they just did that at the end of this film like there's like a little post credit scenes now were just everywhere but if they did that back then it would have been quite revolutionary and they just had Dolph Lundgren give this little public service speech at the end don't do drugs <laughs> remember kids taking over whole kingdoms and subjugating them is bad yeah and remember to look left and right when you cross the road. So you've got Langella giving this wonderful speech before he turns into this god. Shao Kahn, you mean, from Mortal Kombat. Shao <laughs> Kahn! <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think a medal needs to go to, to Langella for that moment because that couldn't have been easy to, to play the part with that just balanced on top yeah. of his head. Like, that looked really <laughs> unsafe and unsteady. Is this not, is it? Where are they? Where are your friends now? Tell me about the loneliness of good E-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? And he made that up on the spot. It's so good. I think, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think I remember reading somewhere that he had quite a lot of freedom of um, freedom of dialogue in this. We should thank his kids, because he did it for his kids, because they loved Masters Universe. That's the reason really? he took it. Uh, he, and he loves it. To this day, it's one of his favourite roles. I think you can tell that as well with this. I think there are there are few performances in this that come off like they didn't treat it as work. And I think Langella is one of those people that, like, you know, you go into a film like this, it's either a paycheck and you just go, I've just got to get through this. It's going to be two months and that's it. I've just got to survive. And there are other people like Langella that's just going to go, I'm going to act the shit out of this film. And just have fun with it, and, I, and and it really comes across like that. I mean, that's what I love. He does go into it all guns blazing, as you say. It's not a paycheck, is it? He knows his role as an actor. He knows he's supposed to entertain people. He's fully committed to the point where you know he disappears, like fully into his prosthetics. You, there's moments in that film where I just completely forget there's an actor underneath, and. On a side note, it's not until the film Junior comes out <laughs> that I find out who Frank Langella is. Right. <laughs> He's it's, clearly enjoying that role, though, isn't yeah, he? Like, he, he? Oh, yeah. He encompasses the... everything. He just takes it on and absorbs it. And I think, like, 
actors today could take a lot from that. I think, I mean, obviously I try and stay away from a lot of like political and, 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 and media aspects on the show, but uh, Johnny Depp, for example, uh, regardless of all the things that are kind of happening in the in the in the media and him going being removed from projects and whatnot, one thing that he's always been very good at is that he does throw himself into different roles. And I think you're right. I think it doesn't happen a lot now. I think it's always the case of ah, we need to get a Tom Hardy type. Ah, we need to get a Chris Hemsworth type. There's always a thing of actors not just playing themselves, but there's not as much of a stretch performance-wise, I think. And I think that's you you have people like Langella who obviously played Skeletor in this. He's Dracula as well. In a version of like like in a version of Dracula they did in the seventies, which was again quite wildly different, almost in a very gothic romance kind of way, from what I recall. Yeah, it's more like the Bram Stoker. Yeah, the original it is, and it's 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 very you know he's he's a a very good actor, and he is the standout of the entire film. It's also interesting though that because we don't get to see his face at all, so you never know that it's Frank Langella. Mm. So he's got the you know like the cojones to go into this role and give it everything, and yet some people will never know who plays him, and I think that's to be respected. But it also gives him the opportunity to just dive straight into the role and not have to ham it up well um, he's kind of hamming it up but that's what makes it so great like it's yeah. it's the standout performance of the film for me i think he, well, he's is. the best bit about it in general mm. just because it actually it doesn't come across as cheesy what it didn't to me no it probably does like on the whole but actually it kind of was in keeping with the film and felt more it felt right like you know it, mm. Like you say, the others kind of were sort of phoning it in in places, whereas this was like, no, he gives it a hundred percent the whole way through. The fight, obviously, like one thing that, like in it, like in that large fight, which stood out for me, is the fact that so at one point you see that Skeletor is saying to 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 fire on the on 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 He Man's friends when they turn up in the throne room with, of course, the big brick wall and <laughs> yeah. and, and, the, and the car being brought into it. And James Tolkien just literally looking down the barrel of the gun going, holy shit. Random fact, James Tolkien is responsible for me being told off for the first time ever for swearing (laughs) because of that film. (laughs) You imagine a four or five year old just literally, like not saying it in relation to anything I was doing, literally just regurgitating lines from the film, not knowing what it was. And there's me not even reaching primary school yet, just going, holy shit. But then he's saying to, 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 to kill He-Man's friends and then He-Man turns to him and goes, you promised not to hurt them. He goes, I lied. <laughs> Farewell, He-Man. And he's firing out this, this, this lightning bolt towards him with the intent to kill him, let's presume. And then the second that He-Man breaks free, Skeletor is yelling at the troops that are attacking him saying, no, don't kill him. I want him alive. It's like, Wait, hang on. Again, continuity. His desires are very unusual. <laughs> Apparently so. There's clearly not enough oxygen getting to his brain wearing that helmet, to be honest. And then one of only two times in the film that we actually hear the line, I have the power. He reaches for the sword and he pulls it. Crazy. Pulls it. <laughs> yep. I was going to say, I don't know why. I, was, I don't know why I stopped myself from saying that. that was even worse because to begin with, I was going to say, he pulls it out. I said, nope. He... <laughs> He withdraws it. Nope, that's even worse. He retrieves the sword. He retrieves the sword. <laughs> <laughs> he retrieves the sword of Grayskull and says, and yells out, I have the power. And then you have that. That's when things start getting heated. That's like the first time you see Skeletor get 
aggravated with He-Man because it just goes to, to smash you out of existence to drive your cursed face from my memory forever <laughs> and you can tell power's getting to his head a little bit now and it boils down to like he has a line earlier on in the film where he says I must possess all or I possess nothing I don't think he's okay no <laughs> why not just leave Earth alone like it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of it right and then we have the the, the final sword fight which unfortunately again very um I don't know if this is a budget thing, but it's uh, it's very interestingly lit. <laughs> it's not actually Frank Langella that is doing the fight either. Okay. It's actually Anthony DeLongis. It's actually Blade dressed up as Skeletor doing the fight. Did not notice. That's really good. And it's not, that's that's the reason why, if you look at it, I think for the most part, all you see is Skeletor's back during the fight and so you see Lundgren from the from the front for the most part it's short and brief and the lights went out because Cannon pulled the plug with three days of filming left really oh they closed production completely yeah they pulled the plug and said you've got you've shut down now and they said we've still got three days left to film we've got the big fight to do no no shut it down is that like the ultimate in cost cutting then is that if we (laughs) don't turn all these lights on we won't have to pay for them I mean, in in the story, you could say when the power of Grace going into the sword and turned all the lights out, but... I thought it was like an artistic thing, right? The focus is purely on them. Like, you know, what's going on in the background doesn't matter. It's purely about them. I thought that's what it was, but... Oh, right, it was... But then you see the lights fade up again after Skeletor dies. Yeah. Like, it's like almost like... like, I I agree. I've always figured that it was more of a... um... Arty artistic license more of a creative yeah. choice more of an artistic choice lighting wise rather than just the studio saying put that light out yeah. <laughs> they snuck in and filmed it at like three in the morning they're like we put too many lights on someone's gonna notice interesting i didn't know that it amused me like i'm watching skeletor fall to his death after that there's a couple of things that came to mind one why was the power in his staff because when skeletor because when skeletor's staff gets smashed that's what turns him back and i'm not sure why Two, when he falls to the pit, screaming to his death, Langella's mouth is not moving. It's not open. I always took that to be that the power went to the staff because the sword was locked in the um, eye of the... Oh, what's the, the eye of... The, the eye of Eternia? Thundera? <laughs> no, it's, but it's the, the eye that yeah. opens. Yeah. It unlocks that, doesn't it? So, yeah. so it's just a focal point of the power the Power goes into. And also, if you've not seen it, on Netflix, there is a documentary, Power of Grayskull. It covers everything from the toys up to the present day and is a good 40 minutes on this on the film. Wow. Sounds good. Just, just one thing I've just thought of. They keep saying, oh, yeah, we've only got so long before Sorceress is completely drained and dead. And it's like, oh, we've got until the eye opens or whatever. And then the eye opens and you're like, oh, she's dead then. But she's not. <laughs> Plot armour. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> we want a sequel. That's what it was, wasn't it? We're keeping her, keeping her options open for the sequel. Is it that she dies or is it just that all of her power is transferred to him? To Skeletor? I think that's how they explain it. But I kind of took that to mean, well, if all oh. of her power, including her life force. She maybe, just kills over. Yeah, that's it. Dead. She's a withered husk. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know. I could Judy, to... Judy Geller wakes up in her bed in in, in Greenwich, <laughs> Connecticut, and just goes, "I had the strangest dream." <laughs> and of course, the lights come up. Everyone says "Victory!" and Dolph Lundgren, very subdued, took a big victory. <laughs> it's right along the line of Sylvester Stallone and the Lord. <laughs> and so, you know, you get all the goodbyes in it. And I think one thing that really baffled me 
and Agami is that like Lubick gets to live in the castle now. Yeah, what's he bringing to the table? What? What? Is Do you know he... what I mean? I yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah, I'll stay and and mooch. Ask the butch and wenchies uh, sat by. Yeah. Oh, made me so mad. But I think part of it's of course after all the the emotional goodbyes, and I'll I'll go back to that in a second. That you've got Julie and Kevin getting sent back to before Julie's parents die. Yeah. And so (laughs) much plot armour in this scene. So much. So let's gloss over the fact a second. How did Gwildor know when to send them back? Two, maybe this is the reason why they let Lubick stay in the castle. Because if they go back to before all this happened, Lubick never investigates them. So he has no need to be involved. And that he never gets to go to Grayskull. So, in a sense of... Back to the Future, as it's James Tolkien, is he just going to fade away because that timeline doesn't exist anymore? So they just went, yeah, we're going to let this dickhead stay here for half an hour or so. It's all going to sort itself out. He'll disappear and he won't be our problem. He'll get midway through Johnny Be Good and he'll disappear. (laughs) But yeah, why the whole bit where she's like, she turns around and goes, wait, wait, Gwildor. Like, obviously that is something she obviously notices that something's different, but it's not really explained very well you're just like oh what's happened is he sent them to the wrong planet has she got to tell him something is it going to be wake wilder i love you or something you know i don't love i don't love tom paris i love i love this little bow selected dwarf <laughs> but yeah that's a whole that opens up a whole paradox of things doesn't it like sending them back a year with the full knowledge of where they've been and what they've done mm. it's he's, he's violating the temporal prime directive right <laughs> horrendously <laughs> For those Gen Zs that have not encountered Voyager yet, this is a Star Trek reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just such a, a a bonkers ending, but it is very, it is a very nice send off for them. I think you know, there's some nice there's some nice moments. There's a nice philosophy as well. And Ollie, I know that you're a you're an advocate of this line, which is "Good Journey." I love this. That they use quite a lot in the film, and it gets it gets delivered quite a lot through the film. But you don't understand why, and then they finally explain it at the end. Yeah, this was the moment that made me actually think that um, Man at Arms ended up with more lines than he should have done over He-Man because I mm. I felt as if it was something that He-Man should have delivered. It sh- he should have said and. During that moment of when Man at Arms explains what good journey means, you kind of see Dolph Lundgren look away, like <laughs> a, almost away to like towards the director and going like, yeah, it was a better choice to choose him. I just couldn't couldn't nail that. <laughs> to be fair, it would have taken about 45 minutes for him to get that entire paragraph of dialogue out. I think so. I think for the benefit of the listeners, actually, because we haven't really addressed this because it just sounds like all we're doing is actually trashing Dolph Lundgren's acting ability in this but part of the thing around it was that they were never going to use Dolph Lundgren's voice it was always going to be dubbed by someone else because obviously being first lead English spoken part that Dolph Lundgren had they were always going to use someone else a la James Earl Jones that's a bold choice (laughs) wow (laughs) it's a bit radical isn't it but the idea behind that then was that they were going to have someone else say the lines but Dolph Lundgren for some unknown reason has a clause in his contract where it said he basically got three attempts to get it right slash dub it if not, then they can use someone else. And they used all of that time up to try and get it right. Then studio starts pulling plugs, so they don't have time to do any ADR on it, or like redub anything in the studio and whatnot. So then they got stuck with 
what Dolph Lundgren was doing. And that's where we're at with this movie. That's why we get the dialogue and delivery in the way that we do is because they just essentially ran out of time. I mean, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. I mean, this goes for the entire film, really. It's like it's, it's to be seen through the eyes of a child, not a film critic. So you can you can see past it and you can kind of forgive the dodgy acting and the dodgy effects. The effects aren't that bad, I don't think. But wouldn't you rather see... I would rather see a Man at Arms movie, to be honest. I actually found his character far more interesting, far more compelling, and the stories he had, like, way... Like, He-Man is almost a side character in this film. Did you not yeah. really else feel that? Yeah, I think he's actually yeah. in the set. Like, I think he's far more relatable in the sense of I'd rather go and find food than I would to throw myself in front of a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a Masters of the Universe. It's not, it's not He-Man. So even though He-Man is kind of like the leader he's not you know the story doesn't arch around him so much so that's why you do have like these great side members like man at arms and teela and just to say i i love their relationship as father and daughter that they bring so much to this film it's brilliant i think teela in this was actually wildly underused yeah i agree i don't know if that was a product of the time but for for characters like that i think like for evelyn and teela who had the potential to be these very big role models in a film you know i mean like now you know for 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 star wars and and for mandalorian for instance we have characters like cara dune and so forth and i think this film missed the mark on that i think they have a lot of potential that was just missed to be fair she-ra was going to be in this and have a much bigger role than teela that would have needed like two films to explain yeah but so they, there was a lot cut from this to make it work for the, what they were trying to do. They need they need a modern re. I would watch a modern remake of this. I think absolutely. Maybe not this, but like a modern <laughs> modern take on on He Man and the Masters of the Universe. Well, it's funny you should say that, Lee, because there are two things that are actually on the horizon. So they are actually going to be. I don't know if they started production yet, but some. But they are actually doing a live action. I believe more contextually accurate he-man we will wait and see on that the theme tune isn't fallen on blondes i riot (laughs) (laughs) the other one is one called he-man revelations i think is the is the name of it kevin smith is making it Ah. which given all the work that he's done with the dc tv series over the uh, last few years with supergirl and the flash it's been some very good stuff so i'm quite interested to see how that plays out that one's going to be animated though that's not live action the uh the other one i don't know much about that at the moment i know they've cast he-man and i can only really hope that they actually go down the realm of you know they need to you need to have the prince adam he-man situation that's one thing that i think fell short for me a little bit is that it was just he-man you get the impression Mm -hmm. he doesn't live as prince adam it's this man is imbued with these powers and that's it that's his life yeah Sorry, the Netflix, Kevin Smith, it's Netflix, isn't it, Kevin Smith? Yes. Yeah, it's a direct continuation for the animated, the Filmation 80 series, I believe. I've read somewhere. What? And good luck with the live action film getting in Fisto and Ram Man and the like. (laughs) 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 If Orko's not in this, I riot. (laughs) Hashtag justice for Orko. (laughs) And that's the film. The Again, the performances of this can't really be overlooked. I think in any way, shape or form, I think everyone is doing their very level best to try and maintain this. Dolph Lundgren, you know, for all the slamming I'm giving about his, his delivery and things like that, I think he does actually do a good job with what he... Not necessarily like what he can actually do, but with what he's given as well. Unfortunately, in sometimes like this, you can only really do as much as script that you're given and the, and the, and the direction that you receive. 
I think it's the presence that he brings more than anything. And I think yeah. that's that's the important thing over the script. He encompasses someone that you can trust and is a safe pair of hands and can and beat the living shit out of like a handful of robots. And and I see I see that. And I think that's more I to me that's more important than the script for him i do think courtney cox needs some credit in this i think considering that this was her first motion picture as well she's really giving it her all she is in this movie <laughs> she is giving more of a credible performance than i would say a third of the people involved in the overall production you have to wonder what went wrong <laughs> just saying that's all i'm gonna say money will change a person <laughs> that's won't it just <laughs> Again, I've talked about James Tolkien. I think like he does tend to play the same characters and all that, but he's still incredibly watchable. It's still a lot of fun to see. I like um, the characters that he plays in those kind of eighties movies. Though mm. it's just, it just works, right? It, it doesn't take you out of it in any way. It's it's perfectly cast. I think. Again, you have to wonder what happened because it's like like he 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 had that stereotype over a period of time, and then it's like James Tolkien just disappeared. I don't recall seeing him in a lot in the nineties. But he was there in the 80s. He was that guy. But of course, it again, it just boils down to this film is Frank Langella's. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's partly the reason why it was just Masters of the Universe and not He-Man and the Masters of the Universe as it was in the cartoon. Because he's just acting everyone off the screen. Whether it's experience or whether it's just, or it's just that he's that much into what he's doing and believes that much in the in the performances that he wants to give in this but he is there isn't it always the way that the villains be in this kind of thing in comic books are, mu are far more interesting than the hero agreed definitely mm. yeah are we are we are we going to overlook the the criminal mispronunciations of skeletor that happen on multiple occasions skeletor <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> I mean, it's the, yeah. Granted, there are there are many times in this that the English language is butchered quite considerably. <laughs> <laughs> I've always really enjoyed, and I think maybe I look at it through a diff slightly different lens now. But there's the scene between Frank Langella and Meg Foster where, even though they're surrounded by lots of troopers, it's just them in the throne room, and he's holding her face, talking to her. Very, it's a very intimate scene, and. It's given off a real, like, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth vibe. Like, it's out like he's not just the brains behind this. Like, she's very much trying to steer stuff in particular ways, it feels. Like, advising him the best way to move forward. Whereas, of course, like, in, in the cartoons, it's always been the case of he knows best, do what he says. I just thought it was, it was a, an interesting dynamic to, to, to throw in there. Uh, you you say that in the cartoon though they're all out for themselves the villains. That's fair. Yeah. Well, and she is pretty much at the end. She's pretty quick to turn, mm. and like mm. retreat right at the end, taking Karg and Beastman with her. Although interestingly, when Karg leaves, he calls Beastman Warmonger. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, he says he says um, with me Warmonger or something like that. That was always really interesting to me. I was like, oh, is this an extra character or have we always got his name wrong? <laughs> so 
yeah, we've we we've talked a lot about the about the overall production and the and the cuts and the financial issues that they had with this. Ultimately, the film had a budget of twenty two million dollars, which was actually Canon's most expensive movie. Uh, Canon mm-hmm. built a reputation on doing certain uh, films, like they made a lot of Chuck Norris films. I think they made Death Wish. I'd have to check that, but it was you know a lot of was talking like lower budget action movies whereas this was going to be this was like one of the biggest ones they did it actually started off with a budget of 17 million and then they upped it to 22 million the real kicker in this is that the overall box office for this was 17 million 336,330 dollars so if it wasn't for that upping of the budget i mean granted a lot of it might have looked a lot more cheap but they could have walked away with a smaller profit do you think that's because it wasn't perhaps promoted by Canon? That it didn't get, like, the cinema releases, it didn't get the... It did, though. Did it? It did. Well, if, well, if we got cinema releases in England... We did. Yeah. yeah. Like, they must have had, even in limited releases over in America, but they definitely had them. And I remember watching trailers for this. Like, promotions on stuff like, particularly the BBC at the time at an international level, would not have been cheap. Is it a case of you know that it strayed so far from the source material that it just didn't appeal as much and i was i don't know you know i was never really big into he-man as i said earlier and was it as big as other franchises of the time you know i think damien you mentioned earlier didn't you that Mm. that it was in decline it was yeah the toys weren't shifting anymore and it should have come out really two years before and it would have absolutely stormed the box office but and you have to remember, Canon at the time, uh, their movie-making practices, they were making a Spider-Man film and then decided to take the budget for that and turn it into two other films, like this and Superman for the Christopher Peace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Kingdom... Foul. The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull of the Superman Universe. <laughs> and I'm including Superman Returns in that. Oh no, Brandon Routh's good in that. Brandon Routh is good in that, but yeah. let's, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Out of all yeah. the Superman films that have been made, Superman Four is a mess. Mm. Oh. Is that the one with Richard Pryor where he becomes a, a machine? That's Superman Three. That's Superman ah. Three. That's badass. Superman Three actually used to scare me as a kid. He doesn't yeah. become the machine. It's one of the women yeah. that's yeah. working uh, with Robert Vaughn. It's it. It's Robert Vaughn's sister gets turned into the robot, and that scared the living shit out of me as a kid. Truly. It still makes me a little. It still makes me a little edgy now, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Very Hellraiser, and that's the that's the film, really. I mean, you know, for for all its for all its faults, and let's be fair, I think we found quite a few <laughs> watching it through a very borderline middle aged lens now. But you know, it, I think as a as a kid, it still holds up. It is a great sci fi fantasy. It may not be a He Man movie, but I think if you look at it through the context of of something in that genre i think it would hold up quite well i think it's just they went a little bit too off-piste within concept i think it's a it's a great i would class it as a dark fantasy and within that like period of the 80s you had there was a great strength in that type of film a year later you had uh willow came out which was a dark fantasy prior to that you had um like dark crystal legend dragon slayer and lady hawk so 
they were trying to like fill that market in a in a similar vein film and i think it really works within that excuse the, the pun in that canon of films i think it stands up it holds up would you recommend it to someone now if they have not watched it before well because you have that nostalgia element to it if you have watched it yeah that would you recommend it to someone as a fresh watch that's the thing isn't it like i still appreciate it and there's the nostalgia and i was there at the time you know i also love that type of film you can only really sell it to someone on a a bad film for a good time it's interesting because the only places that you can really get it now i think we've been very lucky to talk about this considering it's actually now on amazon's mgm channel anyone that would want to watch it would be able to do a seven day trial or whatnot and check it out from there but you can't get this on disc anymore it's never shown on television anymore i tell a lie once i actually flicked through it was on comedy central about a month ago (laughs) that was a new level for me that was just phenomenal it did get a 20th anniversary blu-ray release but it was appalling it was just a straight transfer for the dvd i'd actually be okay with that so like i don't have that dvd anymore i don't have mine which is it's unfortunate because what happened i lent it to a friend of mine at university and he had it for like six months and i kept saying to him i just said mate i need that back i've got to get it back we're graduating like next week mate i need to get that back he handed it to me i went oh magic mate cheers and we all went our separate ways Some of us stayed in Bath, others moved back and things like that. And after everyone had moved on, about a month later, I just kind of went, oh, I'm going to watch that now. And I opened the box and it fucker was empty, wasn't it? Oh, no. So he still has the power. (laughs) Livid. Livid. I don't think he's listening to this, but if he is, you know you are. (laughs) 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 Damien, same question. Given everything, your thoughts would you recommend i would i would if you had a choice if you had a choice between this and batman and robin this any day of the week (laughs) (laughs) that's a low bar to clear i would i would no i would i would recommend it for the production alone yeah i'd be i'd be interested to see if there's any any books or references out there for like william stout designs i actually have the official digital copy there is the art of he-man and masters of the universe but done by dark horse it's the size of a telephone book it's huge and there is an entire chapter on the making of this film and it's mainly conversation with william stout and if you look online i think he's got a website as well and he's got all the character designs for including the she-ra costume and what have you excellent oh check that out lee same question i know that you've been not the largest fan of the franchise i know so you've kind of gone into this a little cold but would you would you recommend this to anyone is this or is it just a if you haven't watched it before best to leave it alone um i actually didn't mind it i i went in and i was like oh am i going to enjoy this and actually if you could take out the majority of the real world stuff i think it would actually be quite good i actually Mm. quite enjoyed the attorney and stuff a lot more yeah i'd prefer that kind of thing i'd be hesitant to recommend it (laughs) like to someone like if someone's like oh i want to watch a a cheesy 80s film potentially i would i'd say yeah if you want to you know have kick back with a few drinks and a few mates and have a laugh yeah Yeah. give this one a go you know especially if you're into it i think if it was another person of my ilk i probably wouldn't i'd be like well you know it's it's a product of its time the the set design the production for the whole on the whole is is mostly pretty good um mm. 
but it is not it doesn't hold that special place in my heart like it does for the three of you if i could say like one last thing though i would say just to watch it purely for frank langella's skeletor yeah that I mean, that is very good like if that's what i mean if you had more of that kind of stuff yeah in he eternia he is a tour de force in this and he is what sells it and what does keep me going back to this film he's terrifying in the role mm. and it's and it's perfect he's a perfect i think he's a perfect villain i agree except for that after credit scene the oh. post credit scene okay i didn't know if we were going to touch on that i'll, I'll be back <laughs> no. yeah no, no you won't <laughs> yeah there was so much that was tried to set not even so much it's that one scene that they tried to set up of oh, maybe there'll be a sequel and meanwhile canon's mm-hmm. literally like shredding documents and packing up its bag <laughs> saying nope no they won't <laughs> which i think must have been they they couldn't have done that straight this like just in the middle of production they must have done that a little time after surely oh no Gone the plan the was for the sequel was going to go back to earth and skeletor conquered it no i i do i do remember reading that um dolph lundgren he turned down the role of a second film again that was another like reason it wasn't made so for the continuity and yeah it was it was it was supposed to be set on earth it was supposed to be something about clones i think as well yeah no skeletor had conquered it and it was a nuclear wasteland and yeah, yeah i think we lucked the in there into cyborg as that well. was it cyborg not clones yeah so when the film went bust and they didn't have any money they used some of the concept and designs they had already made and they threw it into the john glaw van damme film cyborg oh interesting which i can't imagine did canon much use either to be perfectly honest (laughs) well i think that's a good point that we can sign off for this episode first of all i want to say a big thank you to my co-hosts for today lee ollie and damien thank you very much for joining us thank you for having us you're welcome yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, a pleasure. A pleasure always. And of course, a big thank you to you, the listeners, for taking the time to download and stream this podcast. Please like, share, subscribe on whatever platforms that you are using. Also, you can follow us on social media at the usual places. So Facebook, just look for The Geeks Journal. Instagram is at The Geeks Journal. And Twitter is at Geeks Journal UK. Once again, thanks very much. And until next time, good journey.